Good evening, and welcome to this, this year's celebration of the Man Booker at Birkbeck. My name's Hilary Fraser, and I'm Dean of Arts at Birkbeck. Um, I'm usually standing here at graduation ceremonies wearing very silly clothes and faced with a, a, a list of impossible names, mostly unpronounceable, so it's very nice <laughs> to, be, to be here this evening to um, welcome our um, uh, two uh, speakers uh, this evening who've got very easy names to pronounce, um, Alan Hollinghurst and, and um, Russell Kellen, Kellen Jones. That's you. <laughs> so uh, this initiative involves a collaboration between the Man Booker Prize and Birkbeck, whereby we invite a recently shortlisted author to come and talk with all our students across the full range of disciplines about their novel at a live reading event or discussion. I'd like to thank the, the um, Booker Prize Foundation and the Mann Group for their generous support of this event, and I'm delighted to welcome their representatives here this evening. Ours is a very well-matched partnership. The Mann Booker Prize is at once regarded as the premier prize for contemporary fiction and a vehicle for bringing the very best of new writing to a wide general audience. Equally, Birkbeck is an elite research-intensive university whose mission is founded on a belief in making the first-rate education uh, that we provide accessible to all. So we are then a very good fit, sharing a reputation for, for bringing the very best cultural and intellectual achievements to the widest possible audience. Well, among the most distinguished novelists writing today is our guest this evening, Alan Hollinghurst. Author of five novels and two collections of short stories, and as well as a fiction writer, a poet, translator, and editor, he's the recipient of numerous awards, beginning with Oxford's Newdigate Prize for Poetry, uh, and including the 1989 Somerset Maugham Award, the 1994 James Tate Black Memorial Prize and the Bill Whitehead Award in 2011. He's also, of course, twice been shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, which he won in 2004 with his wonderful novel, The Line of Beauty, the work he'll be discussing this evening in conversation with, with uh, Russell Kellen-Jones, uh, novelist and our professor of creative writing, who has himself been a Booker judge. There'll be an opportunity for you to ask questions at the end, and we look forward to a lively Q&A session. <coughs> but now, without further ado, please welcome Alan Hollinghurst and Russell Kellen-Jones. Thanks. Thank you. Um, well, welcome um, to you all. Um, the purposes of this evening's talk is really about the line of beauty, um, although I'm sure part of your questions at the end may want to ask Alan more broader questions. But the focus of my interview really is uh, the one book. Now, I know there have been 2,000 copies of the book left around the campus in Birkbeck, so um, I think I can presume that a lot of you here tonight have read uh, the line of beauty. Them up. <laughs> at least picked them up, yes. <laughs> But I will not assume that everyone has read this, and therefore, you know, I won't be sort of trying, I'll be trying not to give away any sort of um, obvious plot um, devices like ending, for instance. 
Um, so just very briefly, um, the line of beauty um, is really about Nick Guest, who's the narrator in this novel, who becomes a lodger in the family home of his Oxford friend, Toby Fedden. Toby's father, Gerald, is a newly elected MP um, in Thatcher's uh, government in the 1980s. And Gerald and his wife, Rachel, are aristocrats. And through them, Nick is given access to a world that he probably would never have accessed were it not for that relationship. Um, the, the book is set over a four-year period in the 1980s. And it weaves together two epochs, one of AIDS and one of Thatcherism. So if you like, um, a health crisis and a spiritual crisis, if you would like to see it that way. Um, but I'm going to ask Alan just you know, a first question about Nick Guest himself, who is, um, Nick, Nick Guest is an outsider in the novel, but he's also the reader's insider. Um, everything is mediated by him. So all the information we, we learn about other characters in this novel um, is, in, is basically mediated by Nick. And I was, the question really is about, um, what, do you think there are advantages in when you're telling the story of a decline and fall, uh, do you think you're, um, a, an outsider is one of the best perspectives to choose? Well, I've, I've always been interested in the, in the position of the outsider. I, mean, I, I noted you said, and I've heard people say before, that Nick is the narrator of the novel. That he's, well, of course, he's not, not the narrator no, of the no, novel. No. Um, <coughs> but I think quite a lot of people sort of have the illusion. And, and, and I've read articles in which, which say that he is the narrator of the novel. Um, I am the narrator of the novel. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I set myself this, this task of... of um, which we, something we may come on to later. It was a sort of a Jamesian thing. Um, Henry James being very interested in sort of the point of view. Um, that the whole novel, with, as you say, covering quite a long period and with quite a large cast of characters, would all be seen from the point of view of this one person. Um, and it's quite hard to do. Um, but I, I think my initial... It's so hard to remember quite what the initial ideas for a book are, isn't it? But, but I do remember having this feeling it would be very interesting to write about this period, um, not from a, you know, the, the, the political period and the, the great social and economic changes of that period, not from a sort of boringly oppositional point of view, um, but from the point of view of someone who was actually rather seduced by it all. Sort of, mm -hmm. sort of. um, and that you would create... He, he would enter into a, a, um, a, new, a new world which would only slowly re reveal its sort of limitations to him. Mm. Um, well, he's very ena he's enamored by, um, he's seduced, as you say, by this um, world of a political elite. But at the same time, um, his own politics run um, in a different direction. Well, I'm not quite clear what his politics Well, he doesn't seem are, to have politics. But um, for instance, I, I um, thought of him as being yeah. a bit of a political blank, really. Mm. Um, and he, he's drawn to this world first by his uh, infatuation from student days with, with Toby himself, mm. the, the son of the house, um, and then by, <coughs> by all the, mm. the beauty of the house itself and the things in it, which he's very appreciative mm. of. Um, I thought of him as being someone very much sort of 
following the line of beauty, if you like. He, he's very led by beauty, but has a very undeveloped sense, I would say, of, of sort of the political... Well, he's 21 world. years of age. Yes, I mean, he's a kid. Yeah. 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 Um, um, you, you mentioned you, you are the narrator, but this, um, it's written in the third person um, with a limited point of view um, to Nick Guest. And, and, and I think one of the um, uses of that device is to allow the author to, to have a certain distance from your own creation. Yes. Um, and I thought that's very important for you in this book. Well, I'd, my f first two books were both written in the first person, which mm. is, you know, it's a fascinating thing to do. Um, and they were both books about people who are li <coughs> living, I mean, much more really than Nick does in this book, in, in the worlds of their own fantasies and obsessions. Mm. And I think it's quite interesting to plunge the reader in, into that world where every, everything, as you say, about everything is sort of mediated through their thoughts and feelings. Um, and it, it makes for a particular intensity. Um, there are also all sorts of, sort of narratological problems with it because, for instance, the, the question of how you introduce the experience of characters other than the narrator. In that, my first book, The Swimming Library, I, I had the device of the young man who's narrating the story, meeting this man who's sort of 60 years older and, and read, reading his journals. And so you have a sort of antiphonal thing of two narratives um, but there is by the end of the second book I did have a sense of the first person as being rather a trap you know um, and that my third book I wrote from multiple points of view and each chapter of 16 or something was seen from mm. you know successively different um, points of view and I found that tremendously liberating and I love that exactly what you're describing that you know you enter freely into the thoughts and feelings of the characters uh, but you also have that sort of ironic distance on them. Mm. Mm. Uh, and I can't readily see myself sacrificing that again. Mm. Uh, that sort mm. of double focus thing. Well, you want um, an objective and a subjective exactly. um, yeah. perspective. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing about his um, outsiderness is his uh, sexuality. His sexuality, his gayness, if you like, makes him an outsider. Um, but very touchingly, it also makes him an insider somewhere else, which is in uh, Leo's life. Yes. So um, he, he gains access to a, a world that the Fedans do not know. Um, and Leo is his um, lover in the very first section of this novel. And he goes at one point for tea with Leo's family and meets his evangelical mother and sister. Um, and it's a sort of working class life. Um, although I, I say that he's an insider, but he's not exactly an insider there either, is he? He's, he feels a no, certain discomfort. Um, I think he's always sort of floating between, mm. I mean, it's very useful for the, the novelist, of course, the, the outsider, um, who's likely to have a heightened sense of what's particular about any world that he or she mm. enters, um, and also retains a sense of mm. the, the values of the world from which they've come. Mm. Um, and so I think they're quite useful and sensitive observers. Mm. Um, and you've got to have, if you're having a novel with a central consciousness, whether in the first or the third person, you, you've got to have someone who's capable of of mm. um, understanding and experiencing mm. a lot of things on your, be your behalf. You know. um, and I think I've rather tended to load my principal characters with all my own interests and enthusiasms and so on, just because it's an excuse for writing about them. Mm. Um, but um, you're right that um, in several spheres, he, mm. he's sort of, well, he's moving between them, I suppose. Mm. Um, that may be 
in part a, a gay thing as well, I, I think, you know, being, because, because someone, I think someone says at some point, that, you know, are, are the Fedons with whom he's been, you know, are they cool with, you know, having this a gay person in the house? And Nick says, no, it's absolutely fine, as long as it's never mentioned. Um, and, and I think that I mean, there's, there's that sort of tolerance, you know, um, and even being perfectly sort of happy about it, but not, not wanting it to obtrude at all. Um, and so he's, he's from, the, from the start really in a slightly compromised position, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 you mentioned a minute ago about you um, load your narrators, or Nick, with your own concerns and knowledge, and, and what is striking um, is um, the precision of uh, Nick's cultural knowledge. Um, he knows huge amounts about architecture, about fine art, about music, uh, literature, uh, and it contrasts to the vagueness uh, um, and the sheer ignorance of some of the um, aristocrats that he's surrounded by. Uh, and I think there's a sort of moral um, pulse in this um, contrast somehow. And I just wonder what the connections are between making accurate aesthetic judgments and making accurate moral judgments. Yes, well, I think that's, that's if I could think about it uh, straight, I think uh, that's probably what the, the book is about, in a way. Mm -hmm. I, I remember someone wrote a review of the, my third book, The Spell, and, sort of, and pointed out that I seem to, to pay just as much attention to sort of trivial things as serious ones. So what did I really, what did I really think and believe about these people and their, their lives and their values and so forth? Um, and I think I recognized <coughs> in myself that sort of strong aesthetic impulse that, that Nick has, and I wanted to sort of examine it, really, mm. uh, and to see what are the limitations of being, being led through life by your sense of beauty. Mm. Um, I mean, mo Nick's moral sense is, I, I mean, I think he, he's, he needs to be quite an acute reader of people and their observer mm. of people and their mm. behavior. Um, but he's, as we were saying before, I mean, he is a, an innocent. He's very inexperienced yeah. in the ways, the ways yeah. of the world. Um, so he comes, you know, as a... <coughs> I think I was trying to write about the thing of being a, a, a clever kid, you know, mm. who, who, who has all this, in a way one's never cleverer than one was sort of just done one's mm. degree or something. I mean, he, he's, um, he's absolutely stuffed with all this, this sort of knowledge and interest, mm. but um, as you say, moving in a world which doesn't particularly, although it's furnished with all these things, mm. uh, doesn't yeah, particularly yeah. value yeah. or understand them itself. Well, in 83, he's virginal when he writes. Yes, exactly. Um, and in the section, the second section, um, Several years later, he's 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 darkened slightly. I mean, for one thing, he's you know a heavy user of cocaine by that point, and and his sexual life has um, become quite sort of flamboyant and, and surreptitious. And so he he's you know he he's become in a very short period of time some somewhat compromised perhaps by himself, his own. Um, state of morals, but also by the world that he's yes, inhabiting. Yes, I, yes, I mean, I, I wanted him to be sort of take, taken in by <coughs> this, well, and it's not simply a question of, you know, of polite parties and so on. It's, mm. it's the, as we say, he's living in these, these two worlds. Um, I mean, I think he's, he's someone who knows nothing about the, the London gay world when mm. he arrives in, in 1983. And then we have this jump of three years, mm. and we, we meet here again, and he's, um, Obviously, lots happened to him in, mm. in between, mm. and he's sort of he's learnt the ropes, mm. and um, and he's fall, fallen in with this um, other guy, other lover, um, who, who's sort of, again he's taken him into into new worlds mm. of experience. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, 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 I was reading um, something from uh, Charles Moore, who was the biographer of Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher haunts this book in a, in a, in a sort of comic way, almost, really. Um, the only person who gets to dance with Margaret Thatcher is Nick Guest. Um, and he's kind of just had sex, and he's high on cocaine as well. So it's a rather nice moment, you know. And, and everyone thinks, how did he do this, you know? But the thing about Thatcher, in, in, according to uh, Charles Mort, he tells this nice story about Thatcher. Um, just after the Falklands War, she invited about 40 main players in, in the campaign to dinner at number 10. And he, she also invited their wives, um, thus they were all men. And she didn't have enough room in her dining, around her dining table for the women. So she, they, they got sent to another room. So she had supper with um, 40 men who were, you know, serious um, warmongers, really. And at the end of the dinner, she stood and said, um, gentlemen, should we go and join the ladies? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and there's a moment in, in your novel when, um, after a terrible sort of supper party, um, Nick is left with the men having cigars and brandy and, and people like Badger Brogan and Barry Groom. I mean, they're really quite grim creations. And I just felt there, there was a moment when he feels completely out of place Absolutely. with the men, you know, yes. um, like Thatcher actually was slightly out of place in her own life. And, and I just wondered if I could ask you um, whether you would allow me to sort of make a comparison to a Shakespearean fool in, in a sense that, that um, Nick's got this, you know, uh, in, in, you know, a fool in Shakespeare's plays is always someone people go to for wisdom, for knowledge, and for advice, because they have no power, so they can't betray a confidence. They won't get very far. And I, and I saw his, um, whether this is just my interpretation or not, but I saw him in this world. He knows that he will never be anything but marginal, and yet he stays there. Yes. So it's a sort of many questions wrapped in, into one there. I haven't, I haven't thought of him like that, but he, yes, he is someone whom people trust, I think, because he has very nice manners and he knows mm. how to behave properly. Um, and so <coughs> he sort of assimilates himself in, into social situations very successfully. Um, I, mean, I think I thought of, of Catherine, mm. Toby's sister, as being more the sort of the truth teller, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, the person who's constantly saying the, the unwelcome thing about mm. the world of her parents <coughs> and the, so forth. Um, Nick is not so sort of outspoken as that. He's not like Lear's fool, sort of telling these terrible truths. No, but, mm. but yeah, exactly. Well, Catherine, um, I mean, there are quite a few women in this novel, um, and they're a mixture of sages and foils uh, um, and, and, and sort of rather scary women, too, like um, Gerald's mother. Um, Marvellous, actually. I mean, what I should say is that you capture um, characters in single lines of dialogue the way she, for instance, dismisses um, Leo when she meets him, you know, how do you do? And you say, no, in a way that she knows that they will never speak again. <laughs> you know, gosh, you know, a stab to the heart. But, um, um, th th sorry, I've lost my point here, but, but <laughs> um, we're talking about um, Catherine, sorry, the, and the women in this novel, but Catherine is the kind of moral conscience in a sense. But she's, uh, she's the manic, depressive sister of um, Toby. Um, and if she has a conscience, it's cost her quite dearly, hasn't it? Yes, I think that's right. She's very sick. And I just wonder whether that's why she's sick. Yes, she has an illness which is you know, not understood, really, by her mm. parents, who keep 
keep getting the name of her medication wrong and so forth. Uh, uh, Librium, so the lithium. <laughs> yes, yeah. um, <coughs> yes, she has sort of, well, you know, I mean, she, she, she's, up, she's up and down, isn't she? Mm. Um, and, you know, so, uh, I think she loves, she loves some of her, her manic periods and, mm. and the, mm. um, the depressing <coughs> periods are pretty terrible. Um, yes, I wanted that. Well, she's another insider-outsider, I suppose, in a way, mm. isn't she? Mm. Um, she's just mm. sort of rejecting this as mm. well, and she's constantly being sort of sarcastic about it. And, um, and she's, of course, sort of tolerated, and perhaps even welcomed by her father, as you know, saying, saying he's absurd. Saying mm. he's, uh, I don't quite know now. Well, Catherine um, is, as you say, um, cherished, I think, by her parents. Uh, and um, one of um, Nick's roles is to look after her. I mean, that's why he's partly in the house. They, put, they allow him to stay in the house for so long because they see him as someone, um, a, a confidant, if you like, as somebody looking after um, their, their younger daughter. But um, at the same time, their, their relationship is, is it, it keeps on changing in front of your eyes. You know, as you read through the book, their relationship goes hot and cold. Um, and she's also got a terrible taste in men, yes. including right. uh, somebody called Russell. Yes, sorry about that. <laughs> a tattered um, photographer. I take who, um, it personally. Um, yeah. Yes, um, well, I think, yes, at the beginning, she, she has a, you know, an air of, of great sort of, in Nick's eyes, sort of dangerous mm. sexual sophistication, because <coughs> so mm. uh, she's had all these night, nightmarish, unsuitable boyfriends and so forth. Um, and um, so, what was the beginning of the question? Uh, well, it's a, it's um, it's well. Oh, their, their, their relationship, relationship yes. changes. Um, and I think I thought of it as as one of those very sort of in, intense sort of friendships which can develop between gay men mm. and women. Mm. I mean, very very frequently do, which don't have any element of sexuality in mm. them, and therefore mm. are kind of simpler and often stronger in a way, mm. um, because they're not sort of threatened by those sort of um, emotional de demands. Um, and I think, I think they both do sort of care about each, mm. about mm. each other, or certainly him about mm. her. I mean, he doesn't know what he's taken on at the beginning when mm. he's left alone in this house with mm. the, um, this girl, and then, then she sort of tries, she's sort of harming herself very, um, alarmingly, and, mm. um, or, um, and he, he, he's very much struggling to understand. And it's really his his first sense that there might be another sort of dimension mm. to living in this house than sort of glamour and splendour. Well, they're both in the attic. They're both in the attic. Exactly. Mm. Yes. For a mad couple in the attic. <laughs> um, uh, talk about Henry James at one uh, at this point. I think um, uh, Nick at one point um, quotes Henry James to um, two of Wani's employees and. James is credited as saying, the worse they are, the more they see beauty in each other, which I thought was really intriguing. I mean, what, what does that actually mean? I think, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the world of James's novels um, of, sort of the late 1890s, in fact, the awkward age and so on, when he, he's, he's writing with his usual sort of fastidiousness and extraordinary powers of analysis about a rather sort of seedy and corrupt social world. Um, and it's very noticeable that the, the more sort of seedy and corrupt the people are, the, the more they 
mm. say of each other, mm. how splendid and beautiful and marvelous and wonderful they are. Um, so th their sort of their viciousness is is sort of covered up um, and excused somehow, mm. uh, um, but by this um, sort of regard for their sort of vanity, really, I suppose. Um, and I think you know, James was very acutely aware of all that. Um, I mean, I, I was in the middle of a great sort of Jamesian jag at the time I was mm. writing this, mm. and I was um, having it. I mean, I'd always been sort of quite interested in James, but um, there was a lot of James that I hadn't really quite knuckled down to. Mm. Uh, mm. And, I, and I, did, yeah. I did at that time, and I, sort of, I joined a, a, a Henry James reading group, which um, met four or five times a year, and we, and we sort of explored some uh, more obscure mm. areas of the of the canon, and, um, and I became sort of completely obsessed by anything to do with anything Henry James wrote or said, mm. um, sort of became fascinating to me. Mm. And I, I, so I, I, again, I loaded, loaded all that onto, onto Nick. Um, but it did, st did strike me that it would be a, 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 a sort of Jamesian novel, would, would be, I mean, it's not, not, you know, it does all sorts of things which James mm. didn't do, couldn't allow himself to do, mm. wouldn't have done if he could. Um, but there was a sort of parallel between these, um, these, the world of the 18, 1890s <laughs> and that of the, the 1980s, um, and the sort of the vulgarity of, of the world and the um, sort of corruption of moral values and things, which was J James was very preoccupied mm. with. You could sort of have it, have mm. it in parallel. He was um, he warned to some extent, did he not, about the um, dangers of, these, of beauty. Yes. Um, I think he did. That yes. there was, you know, inherently yeah. kind of risk involved yes, in, in pursuing right. it. Really. Yeah. Um, the um, the time this was published, there were quite a few other writers who were writing about James. Um, Colin Tabeen, um, most notably in the Master, but but also um, David Lodge. There was a sort of um, moment, I think. Um, so there were two or three other writers that I can remember um, being sort of influenced by James, all in one period, and I just wondered. Yes. What, what that was about. Yeah, I mean, it was terribly hard fever. luck. Terribly hard luck on, yeah, on yeah. Uh, David Lodge when uh, he was writing a novel about Henry James in 1895 of the disaster of his play, Guy, yeah. Guy Dombrell and everything. And then a few months before, Colin Toybean brought out a novel on precisely the same subject. Mm. Um, the chance of that happening is very, very small, I think, mm. but perhaps you're right. I, I don't know. I mean, Emma Tennant also wrote a. Um, a, a, James, a novel about James and Constance Walcott at, at, at the same time. It was just, it was a... Well, I like the idea that Henry James becomes a zeitgeist. Yeah. It's an odd thought, isn't it? Yes. You know, why him all of a sudden, you know? But maybe it's never been that. He's always been a writer that people have been trying to, you know, um, rise to. I mean, the thing about Henry James, this is another question I wanted to ask you, is that Henry James is, is not easy reading. Um, and it raises this question of why you read. Um, <coughs> And, and uh, I, I feel that you don't read Henry James if you merely want to be entertained. Um, there's something difficult about it. And, and how would you make a defense of difficult reading? Um, yes, I think a difficult reading tends to become less difficult when you've done more of it, doesn't it? True. Uh, I mean, yeah. there's, a, yeah. there's an almost <coughs> impenetrable um, late novel by... Henry James called The Sacred Fount, which I read the first time with really almost no conception of what was going on in it at all. Mm. Um, and then I read it again, and I realized actually it was screamingly <coughs> funny. And, mm. uh, but I think I got over my sort of terror of it, I think. Mm. Um, 
And James's late books are difficult, and I think people often sort of rather cliquishly congratulate themselves on having been sort of being able to understand them. And, 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 um, and I'm probably doing the same thing, but actually, I, I sort of don't. I don't find them difficult any any longer. But you do perhaps have to sort of train yourself in in reading them. You know, James dictated all his last books, and um, and they have a. a their tone of voice is, is very sort of continuous with the tone mm. of voice you find in his letters and records of his conversation. Mm. Uh, and I think once you're seduced by that tone of voice, uh, the whole the difficulty sort of drop, drops away mm. uh, and you, you feel there's this extraordinary intelligence that's just sort of talking to you, mm. playing with you perhaps. But, um, and I think, you know, having been an English literature student and so on, I've sort of learnt to embrace and enjoy difficulty. I did, um, they, at um, UCL they have these annual lectures called the North, Lord Northcliffe Lectures, which mm. I gave mm. about five or six years ago, um, which actually I now remember were called um, Delightful Difficulty. Mm. And they were about three writers um, who had very complicated styles and partly as a consequence had almost no readership at all. Uh, and one was Gerald Manley Hopkins. Uh, who, of course, in his lifetime was only re read by about five people. Mm. He, I, mean, he, he, I mean, he didn't publish his work in his lifetime. Um, one was late, late James, uh, who again saw his never large readership sort of get smaller and smaller and smaller mm. as his mm. books got greater mm. and greater. Um, and the other was the, the English novelist Ronald Furbank, whom I've always been mm. very interested in. Who um, died very early. Furbank died when he was 40, yes, mm. in 1926, and wrote this extraordinarily brilliant, um, very gay, actually, e experimental novels. Um, and in a way, I mean, what it, one of the things that interested me about the difficulty mm. was that it was a way of, of putting people off the, tr mm. the mm. scent um, mm. and of, of, of sort of concealing what the true, often rather shocking subject matter is. And I think James is doing something similar often, you know, um, this, this incredibly re refined, elaborated, texture of the mm. prose. Mm. Uh, what it's really about underneath is often terribly brutal and shocking things. Um, so it's quite, quite. I think particularly in that period too, around the, mm. uh, the beginning of the 20th century and the, the beginnings of psychoanalysis and so, uh, that the sort of the protection of difficulty. Mm. Um, mm. I mean, all three of those writers, I think you could, that I was mentioning, you could say were, were gay mm. Um, mm. And, and in very different personalities. Mm. Mm. Um, but they all sort of take refuge in this, mm. this difficulty. But, but the, um, the, the, your, the gayness that you write about is now in the open. Um, and I sometimes wondered whether um, the relationship that Nick has with Wani, who is the very beautiful Lebanese man um, who is living in an awful family, basically, a very reaction family, do not know he's gay. He's also engaged to a rather tragic um, Martine um, but but um, it's quite sort of, how do you describe that? I mean, the, the, their sex takes place, place, they seem to take great delight in having sex um, a floor above their families whilst they're having, you know, an hors d'oeuvre yeah. or something. And, uh, and <coughs> you know, and, and having a threesome with, with um, you know, a Portuguese waiter uh, um, and things like this. And there's something um, uninsured about it, which I felt was almost you both um, wanting to write um, explicitly about sex, but also being aware that 
prior to, say, 1967, it was impossible to do so. So not that long ago, really, that no. th th these things could not... Y your freedoms are relatively new. Yes. No, were, I mean, they were freedoms I very much wanted to explore when I mm. started writing fiction, you know, in... The, in um, <coughs> I started writing my first novel at the beginning of 1984. Um, so um, it was something that I'd thought about. But, you know, I was, what was I? I was 13 when the Sexual Offences um, Act was made law, um, bill was made law. Um, so I remember that, that I mean, when, when I was a student, this, this was, mm. there was this sort of new, new sense of the possibility of saying things about, the, uh, about gay lives that there hadn't been before. Um, and when I was at Oxford, I did my graduate thesis um, about gay writers who hadn't been able to write openly about their mm. sexuality, such as Ian Forster and Burbank again. Um, and the sort of the concealment and the covert way of sort of hinting mm. at the subject. And, the, and the, new, the, the novel things that it made these writers do with the novel itself, you mm. know, and what you do if, if you have this convention which is of English social comedy, which is based on a boy and a girl coming together. <coughs> um, mm. How can you sort of sidestep that? I mean, James is, is also very interesting in this, this way. Um, and I think when I wrote my first book, I, I, I thought, A, I would juxtapose the world of someone growing up very uninhibitedly in the present with that of someone who had grown up under quite different constraints. Um, uh, but, but I would also seize these new sort of freedoms because mm. people really hadn't, and I'm not, blowing my own, not meaning mm. to blow my mm. own trumpet, but, but people mm. in, in sort of literary fiction have, <coughs> hadn't really written about gay sexual behavior. Well, you can change the law, uh, but it takes a long time after the law has been changed. It does, and it's fascinating that you know, come I, I quite and, agree. You know. um, and, um, Yes, well, I mean, you know, the law changed overnight, but, but the sort of yeah, mentality yeah. and everything was, was very much slower. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, Forster's Morris came out mm. um, in 72, was it? I mean, just after he, he, was after yeah. he died. Yeah. Um, and people, of course, in Forster's own lifetime mm. never wrote about him as a, as a gay novelist. Mm. Now it's mm. absolutely axiomatic. It's the sort of basic thing that we sort of know and think about when we read his books. So, mm. I mean, it's, there's been a huge mm. change, but it was all quite sort of fresh then. Mm. Um, and I think in the 80s, and particularly, of course, when, when AIDS begins, you know, that, that's the next sort of, after gay lib, you know, that, that's mm. the next sort mm. of great, great crisis. So I wanted to, to have that impinging on this, mm. this world mm. of new freedoms and mm. getting a very queasy sort of situ situation. Well, then, then mesh, as I said in the beginning of this conversation, these two worlds collide in a sense. Um, um, and there's a lot of blame around at the time, in, in, in the 80s. Um, uh, and I suppose Nick what is an innocent who, who slightly grows up in, in this world. And, um, but, you know, there's a reckoning in this book. And, and um, I just wanted to ask you sort of more of a nuts and Bolt's question, really, which is about the form, because um, the novel, if you like, um, the, the frame of the novel is supplied by the house in, in Kensington Park Gardens. I was wondering where, you know, how that came about. Did you, did you have the idea of the form before you began the novel? Yes. Um, well, before I began actually writing it, yes. Mm. I mean, I always do plan books quite, you know, not in obsessive detail, but mm. I, I like to have a, a sense precisely of the, <coughs> the large sort of arch 
architecture of the book before I begin it. Um, and I think I had the idea, yes, of Nick being sort of welcomed into this house at the mm. beginning and, and without giving too much away, being ex expelled from it at the end. Um, and that, as you say, the house is in a way a sort of figure for the, mm. the book itself. Um, I mean, I suppose I'm not quite clear what people mean by structure in, in, a, in a novel, I think. And no, I it's don't actually, know either, It's all sorts um, of things, isn't it? It's, yes. to do with, it's also to do with a sort of consistency of tone of voice. Um, well, you have to have a time period, which is what you yeah. have. So it's four years in a house, if you like. So, so I don't know what structure is. I think it's a very difficult... It's a very elusive um, thing. Elusive when you're thing, to but form, I, I think I understand, and I think that's what this book yeah. has. Um, um, but it allows you to contain, um, you know, a, a, a culture, you know. Um, so the references go beyond that. I mean, the, the, I've asked you a question about the form, but the other question is about the title too, um, which is really um, more broad than the form itself yeah, and the um, the OG curve, um, the, the notion of, um, I mean, what what is the line of beauty? It's, uh, you know, obviously it's, it comes from Hogarth, it comes from... Um, I mean, I just think it, it's about doubles. It's about double life. It's about double curves. Um, yeah. But I mean, how did that, you know? I mean, The Line of Beauty is a beautiful title, actually. But, but it's also, uh, like a lot of the, the prose, the, it's a surface under which um, there's a lot of tidal movement and, and strains yes. and stresses. Well, I'm, I'm glad you think that's the case. I mean, I didn't, as often happens, I didn't really get the title until I pretty well finished the book. Mm. Um, but um, mm. I felt. I mean, I don't know if you're the same, but I, I mean, I have pages and pages in my notebooks where I put down brilliant titles at about 11.30 at night. And then yeah, yeah, and two o'clock in the morning, yeah. you wake up again. Uh, but mm. um, this one pleased me because of, of its sort of working on different mm. levels, you know, and mm. having, having both the sort of physical and um, meaning, which is actually sort of described at several points in the book, you know, uh, the, the Hogarthian, as you say, the, the double curve, the thing that mm. sort of goes one way and then the other. Um, which Nick traces in various sort of erotic ways. Mm. And, mm. Um, and well, there it's are flesh, it's skin, and, it's yeah. one, it's arse, basically, yeah. and his back. And, 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 the, and there are jokes, of course, about yeah. lines of coke and, and things. Mm. Uh, but it also has a sort of, a sort of metaphorical meaning of the mm. kind that we were talking about at the beginning, you know, mm. of, of following a line of beauty in, in life. Um, mm. And it's, yes, it is quite a good, I thought, you know, people, people like lines and they like beauty. Can't, can't, they do. Can't, can't go yeah. far wrong. Yeah, and um, cur but curves are not—they're not structural. You know, they're, they're um, ornamental. You know. That's right. Yes, that, that's quite right. Mm. Um, the book, yes, it has a—it has a three parts. I, think I, I, I always seem to need a, an odd-numbered structure, and th yeah. this is sort of a triptych with a, the, the third bit being the last bit of my books is always much shorter than the others because I'm, I'm always running out of money at that point. <laughs> and I write so slowly that it takes me much longer to get there. So I had to rather hurry the last bit. So the horses so, yeah, start galloping yeah, yeah, at the end yeah. then. Um, but, um, yes, the, I mean, the, with the, these gaps of time mm. in between, which is mm. something I quite enjoyed ex exploring, so that there are, yeah. you know, within the curve of the book, there are these discontinuities, which yeah. um, I hope sort of draw the reader into sort of wondering... And I think it's quite yeah. disconcerting at the beginning of a new section when you don't think. Well, well, the notion of having to 
um, write about every moment of somebody's life over four years yeah. is, is a kind of novel, but you, your form is very differently structured yeah. in that I mean, respect. I've always felt that I, I wasn't writing insofar as I was writing anything which had sort of social, historical dimension to it. I wasn't doing anything sort of comprehensive mm. or balanced mm. or responsible or anything like that. You know? mm. I mean, I was, t I was telling the story of particular, often rather strange individuals in particular mm. periods. Mm. Um, but I don't sort of, I wouldn't make any claims for it being a, a sort of balanced picture of its period or anything. Mm. Uh, that wasn't at all mm. my mm. objective. Um, so um, what about yourself? I mean, if I may ask you a more personal question about where you come from, really, because we were talking a little earlier about how, you know, the, um, the, the, the genesis of a novel, it has to come from you somewhere. Um, and in the process of writing a novel, it loses perhaps its original autobiographical pulse. But, but you know, your, your, your background is not unsimilar to Nick's in that respect. Your parents were middle class, like Nick's are middle class. They were educated and they were respected and education they wanted you they sent you to boarding school at a fairly early age. Yes. Um, and by the way, um, I read somewhere that um, the owner of Canford House was a man called John Guest. That's correct. Was yeah. this anything to do with uh, the surname of Nick? It may have been in there, yeah. mm. uh, yes. Interesting. Okay. Uh, unpleasantly well-researched interview, though. Yes, I... Um, well, I think, you know, I've never written, as it were, autobiographically in fiction. I've never sort of written mm. the, the story of my life, I think. But um, as you know, I was saying, you know, all these personal sort of interests and enthusiasms, mm. which I sort of give, tend to give my own characters. Um, and I suppose, and I think in various books, I've sort of split myself up. Perhaps all novelists have, have to do this, you know, if you're... Mm. Um, unless you're writing absolutely sort of caricatural figures in, in the, or, or very sort of satirical figures. I mean, you put different parts of yourself mm. into different characters. Um, and I think, you know, there is a lot of me in Nick. And I, I think the, 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 the chapter when he, he goes back home into the sort of the, the, mm. the provincial world for which, sure. for which, yeah. he, um, which he now looks, looks on with a rather sort of condescending eye. Mm. Um, I mean, I, f I found that, that was a sort of rather personal experience writing that mm. chapter. I, mean, I don't think I'm condescending about the world I come from at all. Mm. But, um, no, no, and the whole, the whole, the sort of the given of the book of London itself representing mm. the life for the, mm. this young person, and perhaps by the end of the book representing the opposite of life. You know. But certainly that mm. feeling, I mean, I, I came to live in London in the end of 1981, so um, just a bit before Nick, mm. and I was rather older than, than he is. But having that sense of London itself, sort of well, geographically, sort of representing sort of limitless opportunities and mm. a, a whole new life, and I wanted to um, replicate that that sense in him, I think. Mm. Um, but uh, I, you know, he is a, he is a dis in my mind's eye a distinct sort of fictional character. Um, and I had, uh, had of course, to, to give him moments of appalling sort of cowardice and moral weakness, mm. some of which are rather, mm. actually rather hard to write. Uh, but sure, sure. But, um, 
I knew that they were sort of right for what it was I wanted to show him being yeah. sort of and to some uh, extent you, you corrupted and losing his bearings. As well. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, if ever one has doubts about Nick's um, morality, all you have to do is look at the morality of the people who surround him, and you think, well, he's not that bad. <laughs> and this is a constant sort of refrain. Yeah. Um, the, in the earlier part of the novel, he, he, he looks at himself in mirrors, but he also sees strangers in the streets. There's a woman with a white dog at one point, and he says, I wonder how I look to her. And, and this is a repeated refrain. But of course, some, his narcissism is, is mild because nobody actually is looking at him. But, but, but Gerald, however, you know, he, he turns everyone into, into observers because his narcissism is powerful. And in fact, when, when um, they end up in the same place in Barrick in Northamptonshire, which is um, Gerald's seat, um, Gerald knows and meets um, Nick's parents. And, and there's, a, there's a line, um, and he never asked them a single question or something like that. You yeah. know? So, so there he is, you know, uh, and they're so admiring of Gerald and, and he just... No, he's They're just a great, to a great sort of rampant ego, really. Yes, yeah. he's not yeah. on whom other people don't really impinge, and except as people who are going to sort of applaud <coughs> or occasionally thwart him, mm. really. Uh, I, mean, I think that's quite a recognisable type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, but, but they don't know anything. And that, that's, I mean, I was, one is struck in this novel by, by um, as I say, it has been said a lot about your work as the the beauty of the, the sentences, you know, the, the, the way you can capture a sliding one-second moment and hold it and make it into an object almost, which is the sentence. And, um, and um, you know, one, one, you feel reading your novel um, a certain um, a concern for Nick. You know, you just don't know how he's going to turn out, obviously. You know, I mean, he's on a, a tra tra trajectory. He's on a journey that, that is um, understandable. We can identify with that, but also he's in moral peril, if you like. But, yes. um, but one thing that he has that nobody else has in the book, or very few people do, which is this um, a culture uh, and a knowledge, and you feel that will perhaps save him in the end, which I think it does, um, because everyone else, as I say, you know, if you can't even remember your daughter's on lithium, not Librium, I mean, you know, there's not much hope for these other characters. Yes. I mean, I very, I very much don't want to make sort of explicit judgments within the book itself. Mm. And, and what I like is the sort of moral relativity of the, mm. the whole thing. And I think readers will form strong views about mm. the rights and wrongs of the world. Um, but I like the idea of their, the reader's mm. relationship with the, the, the principal character as being mm. a rather sort of unstable one. And uh, you know, rather like one's relationships with people can be mm. in life as one gets to know them better and they change and one changes one's and the whole, um, yeah. so I hope readers, I mean, I've had such a wide variety of responses to Nick himself from readers, really, from, from yeah. um, people who, who think he's sort of adorable, you know, and they, they're sort of with him every step of the way. Mm. Um, another friend of mine who, who didn't exactly reassure me by saying when, when he read the book that he just absolutely loathed Nick from the very first page. <laughs> but he kept uh, reading it. Yeah. But he kept reading. Mm. Um, but I, I, I rather <coughs> sort of re, re, rejoice in, in that mm. sort of diversity mm. of reaction because mm. it, it shows that it's a kind of personal engagement, if you mm. like. Um, well, it was psychologically yeah. real. Yes. Um, yeah. So, um, but it, it shows how difficult it is to sort mm. of make any mm. definitive sort of statements about those. Yeah, things. yeah. Um, um, the other writer that 
sorry, haunts this, I think, is um, uh, war, as you might say. Um, um, and I, keep, I read this the other day, which is uh, George Orwell. He says of uh, England War that he's as good a novelist as it is possible to be while holding untenable opinions. <laughs> you know, uh, um, but that's it. Yes. I mean, that, um, that ambiguity, that, that, you know, as, as, a, as a character and also as a writer, in a sense, you, you have, that's the place where you are. You know, you have to stay in that place without... Um, it's, it's almost like sitting on the fence, but it's not. It's because it gives you the best view, I think. So where you um, create fiction from sometimes is uh, in a no-man's land because you want to see how the Germans and the British are. No, I quite agree. Yeah, I absolutely agree, yeah. Um, I mean, war is such an interesting case, isn't it? Because, um, I mean, I revere <coughs> war. I think he's the most mm. brilliant writer, but, of course, he's very strong personal persuasions mm. show through his books very mm. strongly in different ways. I mean, particularly as things go on in the very strong sort of Catholic vein. Um, and in Brideshead, you know, which I think is sort of his weakest book in a way. Mm. I mean, it's really sort of crippled by his own sort of r r romantic feelings about his subject. And it sort of corrupts the way that he mm. actually writes. Um, there was a when I first joined the, the, the TLS, it was when the, um, the Granada Brideshead was being mm, mm. shown. Yeah, and yeah, um, we, yes, we had yeah. the brilliant idea of getting Kingsley Amos to review it. And I always remember the beginning of his review when he said that um, Evelyn Waugh was, um, was a brilliant writer, a one-of-a-kind uh, liable at any moment to write a really terrible book. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I think he'd really sort of put his... You know, there was a sort of... A weakness there, but mm. uh, no. He, I mean, his his best books are absolute sort of um, what's the word? Load load stars for me. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yes, yes. I'm going to um, perhaps open this discussion out now and ask um, you if you would um, like to ask Alan a question. And there's one straight away at the back here with your. I think uh, there's a microphone coming over to you, sir. Uh, very much so, yes. <laughs> 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 um, yes, it was quite interesting. I mean, I was, I was just wondering, that as I'm sort of getting going on a new novel now, wh whether I could sort of have a central lesbian character in it. Um, and I just thought <coughs> I would actually find it quite difficult. I mean, it's a I mean, I, I always say that a writer ought to be able to write about anything from any point of view. Yes, yeah. um, but I think it, it was certainly part, when I started writing fiction, yes, part of the fun of it, actually, yes, was sort of <laughs> writing about things that turned me on. Yes, right, very much so. Um, I think that may have sort of diminished a bit with, with the years. <laughs> sure, come, come. I can't believe that. Um, is there another question? Um, there's one there, back row. Hi, 
Hi. Um, Nick is a very real, real character for me. And um, yes, even last week I was walking around West London thinking, I bet that Nick Guest would live here somewhere. And I was just wondering if you ever <laughs> almost, I don't know, sit down to breakfast with him or how long it actually takes you to disassociate the character, I suppose, with the fact that you're writing the character, if that makes sense. I don't sense. think I have this sort of romantic sense, which um, perhaps some writers do too, though I, I think generally not in my experience, mm. of the character having a sort of real existence beyond in some quasi-Dickensian, mm. you know, being, being larger than the, the novel that they're in and so on. Um, and I was talking about all the things that are sort of invested in, in Nick, but um, I, I'm rather relieved to say that I, I've never felt I was sitting down to breakfast with him um, <laughs> or, or, or indeed doing anything else with him. Um, and I've, I think I've always, in a way, created, you know, tended to create protagonists whom I don't necessarily terribly like. Um, so by the time I've got to the end <coughs> of the... And I, you know, I was complaining about what a long time it takes me to write a book anyway. I'm, I'm actually very pleased to see the back of them. Um, like the Feddens. Um, I, I miss the Feddens rather much. <laughs> well, Ger Gerald's mother in particular was, was Rachel, sort of my... Yeah. Uh, no, sorry, Mrs. Lady Cardington. Yeah, she was yeah. my favourite yeah. character in the book, and I, I, mm. I was always very cheerful when I knew she was get, going to come back mm. in again, because it, it's great fun writing, writing monsters. Yeah. Um, but, um, I mean, I'm very touched that you, you sort of say that and you feel that the, these fictional characters might be still sort of strolling around. Um, yes, I really th do. Th 30 yeah. years later, <coughs> it, it haunting um, the... I mean, I'm sure everyone's um, aware of, you know, that part of London, you know, um, Notting Hill, Holland Park, Kensington Park Gardens, but it is... Um, it is I, I lived there for about two years, in fact, not far from the location of this um, novel. You never, you never saw Nick, did you? <laughs> I, I, well, I, I recognised him in your book, and also, but crucially, those, those, um, the gardens. Uh, one of the great things, if you ever will, I was just lucky, I was, you know, somebody offered me a room many years ago, 20 odd years ago, um, and I had access to their gardens, I was a key holder, and, and um, you know, you, you would sit there in the summer on those lawns with those beautiful trees, looking through the, the, the wrought iron gates at the street, yeah. and the life going by, and they couldn't get into you, you know, but, but you could get in and out as you pleased, and so, it's a visceral place, uh, and, um, I suppose um, you have walked around that area many times, and out of that environment comes a character for you. Or maybe that's well, not how it started, I don't know. I mean, when I first moved to London, I, I lived in a friend's flat in, in Notting Hill, um, and I used to frequently go down and swim at the swimming baths on Walmer Road, I think it is. Mm -hmm. So I used to walk along Kensington mm -hmm. Park Gardens um, several times a week. I think I've actually slightly glamorized it in the book. I mean, it's now a sort of incredi incredibly yes, sort yeah. of um, posh and magnificent. But then, I mean, the Notting Hill was very much shabbier back in those days. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated seeing quite recently, again, not having seen it since it first came out, the, um, A Bigger Splash, you know, the film mm -hmm. about David Hockney, which has a, a lot of shots of Notting Hill streets mm -hmm. in the 60s, I think, or the early 70s. Um, and it was so shabby, mm. uh, yeah. and, and um, the whole sort of um, 
Caribbean thing about Notting Hill was very much strong. I mean, you know, there's been this progressive sort of gentrification. That, that was, um, but the time that this book is set is just, you know, after summers of which there have been very serious sort of race mm. riots all over mm. England and so on. So the whole thing had, to use a fashionable word, a sort of edginess about it and a, and a sort of marginal sort of dinginess about it, which um, I think I've slightly airbrushed out in, the, um, <laughs> in this, this mm. novel. Um, but I used to walk along this, nonetheless, grand, grand street frequently and sort of wonder about the lives that people mm. um, lived there, and I, th I think when long afterwards I, I came back to sort of writing a novel about a young man in, arriving in London, it sort of suggested itself sort of almost unconsciously as, as a, a, a place where he might, where he might mm. li live mm. and move. Um, mm. I mean, I, the, the, the building, the sort of geographical and built sort of locations and things are very, always very important to me when I'm sort of planning a book. Yes, uh, yes, yes, indeed. Um, uh, gosh, there's quite a lot of questions. Um, yeah, I think that, that lady caught my eye first. At the further, sorry, at the back, and then you. Yeah. Hi, yeah, um, oh, well, this is it. Uh, I just wanted to say I read your book when it came out, which is about almost 10 years ago now, and so it's been a huge part of my growing up, and my, even, I would say, like, my sexual awakening came similarly through sort of reading the book, and... Uh, I had a question about the way that you write some of the scenes. I noticed in The Folding Star as well, there will be these scenes where a conversation that in real life would have lasted probably like 10 seconds is stretched out over pages and pages because it has all this kind of internal and observational and then someone will make a comment and Nick will think like, oh, it was as <coughs> if this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, and it goes on. Um, I'm curious oh, if no, there's... No. <laughs> <laughs> there's any... Um, any way that you feel that happens to come out or if it's in dialogue with other writers or where, where does that come from? Because I, I really love it and I'm curious about it. Well, I think I've always been quite interested in, in analyzing converse, conversation and you know, all, all the things that are not said in conversation, uh, which is, goes back to the heart of a lot of things we were talking, you know, mm. the, th the things which are not said or can't be said. Um, which may be serious, or they may be they may be trivial, but but trying to sort of pin, pin down exact exactly what's going on bet between two people when they're talking, um, and perhaps I sort of overdo it sometimes. I don't know, but um, it's I mean, it is certainly something which I, I love in in James. You know, who who can um, subject a quite trite exchange to pages of breathtaking analysis. And uh, and I guess war doesn't do it, does he? I mean, he, he presents conversation in a, in a, in a mm. an almost absurdist sort, sort mm. of way. Um, he doesn't give you the, all these ample sort of stage directions about um, how things are set, said and interpreted by the the, the, the players. Um, so, so you don't you don't have to do it. Um, I just find it very, very fascinating. I think. Thank you. There, there was a lady there that, um, and then we'll go in the middle. I think. So I love the book and I love the Stranger's Child as well. But right I just, um, you don't, you only concentrate on the upper and middle class, and uh, 
how do you define beauty and things like that. It just seems that you'd never address anybody below the middle class. Uh, and that's not a criticism. I just was interested how you know your history, your biography has affected your writing in that way. I'm, I'm sure it has in a lot of ways. I've always, I mean, I don't know very much about the other class, and I haven't sort of moved in it much at all. But because of you know, I've read a lot of books and seen a lot of television. I, I, um, I sort of feel like everybody probably that we sort of know know about it. You know. um, and it's. It's a sort of literary convention in a way, which I feel is sort of within my reach. Um, and um, I mean, I suppose you know, Leo and his world are a sort of mm. uh, a working class um, environment and, a, you know, and a, black, a black, he says he's, he's never been in a black household before. And it's, and it's all sort of, it's a sort of doubly new experience. Mm. And I think I, you know, I grew up myself in, in a very sort of socially circumscribed world, you know, being sent away to a, a boarding school at the age of seven, and that kind of ex country boarding schools, extraordinarily kind of isolated from everything that was going on in the 1960s outside. Um, um, anyway, I don't. I hope my work's not itself circumscribed by where I went to school, but um, that seems to be the way it's turned out. I mean, I should say that I don't. When I talk about planning a book, I don't sort of think this next book I've really got to have a proper look at the working class. You know. uh, I, mean, I mean, my books sort of come to me in some way I can't quite describe, and I sort of then I sort of find what I've got, you know. Um, and it's obviously not an entirely passive experience, but um, there's oddly little of that sort of calculation goes goes into it. Um, also, rich people are, are great fun to write about, of course, because they, they can afford to be behave so badly and you know, do such ridiculous things and hold such <coughs> nauseating opinions. Um, 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 Martin Amis is a writer who writes about the working class, but he, you know, he slightly does it rather with great moral difficulty. And he once said that um, the low life is something I drive through in my German car. You know, and I thought that was a very witty thing to say, but it's also very true of his work. D.H. Lawrence is a very good writer on, on both working class and upper class. Absolutely, right, yeah. You know. Well, he was a yes, exemplary outsider, wasn't he? I mean, a very working class background, mm. uh, but moving into the, the, the sort of bohemian mm. world of Lady Ottilie Morrill and everything. Yeah. Um, and then sort of escaping from it, of course. But it's, um, yeah. Mm. He, he did it. Um, now, a gentleman in the middle there. Hello. Um, Hello. Coming out, age 17, The Line of Beauty was one of the first gay novels I read. And it was particularly the first reading of kind of the HIV epidemic as a young man I had. Um, in the decade before The Line of Beauty, there's kind of an absence of, of AIDS fiction after writers like Adam Mars-Jones, David Rees, Oscar Moore, with the medicalization as kind of a gap. And you're one of the first authors to, to rewrite in the noughties about the HIV epidemic. Um, I was wondering what were the challenges of revisiting the HIV era and do you feel any responsibility writing about it knowing that there would be young men who hadn't experienced it and this would be their first experience of sorts? I don't think I quite thought of, of that. Um, I was very much aware of not having written about it at, at the time that Adam and other people were writing about it, i.e. the time when it was all going on. Um, and of course I read quite a lot of the fiction that was came out of, directly out of the crisis, and it was of you know, vari variable qu 
quality, um, but it was all inf informed by the, the urgency of the moment and attempts to understand it. Um, and I think I was very wary of um, taking on, I, I was saying how I'd, I'd never presumed to have, be giving a sort of balanced or responsible pic picture of anything. I was very, very wary of becoming, ha having published a bit quite sort of conspicuously gay first novel, of becoming any sort of gay spokesperson. Or, um, and I felt, actually I did feel a sort of pressure to write an AIDS book at that time. Um, and I felt myself resisting it, partly because in this strange way I'm suggesting something else had come to me that I, I knew I wanted to write about. Um, I think actually my second book, The Folding Star, which has a, a character in it who, um, who has AIDS but is actually killed in a car crash, um, I think that was my way of saying, so signaling that I was aware of this. You know, I, hadn't, I hadn't failed to notice that AIDS was going on, um, but that wasn't what I was going to deal with in this case. Um, and I, I mean, I've talked with you know, various other gay writers about this, and, and Edmund White said something, which I, I mean, who of course has written about it wonderfully himself, but there is something about the AIDS storyline, which is a, a, you know, a, a rather de depressing one um, for the novelist, that, you know, that someone is well, then they get ill, then they get more ill, and then they die. Mm. Um, and it's very hard, I think, to know how, how you can treat that with sort of artistic success. And I, I knew I, I, I felt I, I couldn't, um, despite you know, having, having lost people very close to me at that time. Um, and I think I, I just needed time to have passed. Um, and I, when I came to write this book, I saw that I could write a book that was um, about the, those middle years of the 1980s, but which wasn't an AIDS novel. It was one in which AIDS would be a very significant fact, factor in a larger sort of historical picture. Um, and I consciously, you know, the, the, my first book, the, the Swimming Pool Library, which I started writing before AIDS um, and published when AIDS was going full blast. Um, it was a very strange experience, that, because the, the world I was writing about actually sort of changed in this massive way whilst I was writing the book. And I decided not to um, reflect that in the book itself, which is, comes to an end in the, in the summer of 1983. Mm. Um, so when I, when I came back, um, the period, I mean, I, this book begins just after Mm. the moment that the, um, the Swimming Pool Library mm. ends. And I, th I, th I suppose I thought of it as sort of unfinished business in a way about that, that period. But, but mm. And now I saw a way of doing it in a manner that I found But writers write through memory, don't they? Well, I, yes. And one of the problems with yeah. writing in the 80s about AIDS is that, you know, it was going on. It was very difficult to, to, you know, to, to know how to approach it, I suppose. Yes. Um, and it's a very different thing, but 9-11, you know, writer, when 9-11 occurred, writers, particularly in, in America, particularly East Coast writers, thought, well, what do we do about it? And somebody said, just forget about it, just don't write about it, you can't, not now, you know. Um, and it was a sort of sense of, you can't ignore it, but you can't write about it either, it's very frustrating, I would imagine. Sorry, I was still in the question there, but um, the lady at the back, um, with a hand there. Hello. Um, I was wondering, you were saying you had different responses to Nick um, from different people, like really varying depending whether they liked him or not. 
I was wondering whether you noticed sort of a gender difference or a sexual difference, and if you noticed that women particularly like him or men particularly don't, or if gay men particularly warmed to him or particularly didn't. Um, I don't, and I don't think it was, actually, no. I'm just very quickly trying to, trying to think. Um, no, there were some very strong females and rejectors of, of Nick, and others, others who seem to, to other, other I, I, I seem to remember. Um, would you expect there to be? No, I was just genuinely curious. I had yes. no, I liked him a lot, and oh, I think cause he's quite a complicated character. I wondered if there was any difference depending on how you identified with him. Yes, um, I don't, and things like that. Again, it's, I think it's one of those fascinating sort of unknowables, variables um, in, in the in the reading experience. Um, mm. It is such. A, well, this is a rather banal thing to say, but it is such a wonderful thing about the novel as opposed to any other art form. You know that it, it is created afresh by every person, mm. uniquely mm. by every person who reads it and sort of reacts to it, mm. pictures it um, on the basis of the hints given by the writer in their completely distinct mm. way. And there's just so much you don't know about what a novel means to other mm. people. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, J James Wood writes about the um, uh, a, a kind of malaise he sees in um, contemporary writers trying to create nice characters, um, protagonists who are likable. Mm. Um, and if you look at you know, the great novels, you know, Dostoevsky's you know, Crime and Punishment, um, Macbeth, you, know, you name them. I mean, these aren't nice characters, but that's not the point. But the, but the books or the plays are very moral. Um, and I see Nick as someone like anyone in life. He'll have people who like him and people who don't like him. Yeah. So in that respect, he's... he's um, I think he's quite cool myself, you know. And, and also, you know, he's on the right side. He's on the side of the angels, you know. He tells, um, it's not Badger, but somebody like Badger to fuck off at one point. You know, he just abused a taxi driver, a black taxi driver um, in the novel. You know, I mean, when it, when it counts, he steps out of his shell and just says, and stands up for, for what he believes in. And it's difficult for him because he's um, living that life. Um, yeah, question at the back there. Um, yeah, I was wondering uh, if you could talk a little bit about the experience, the experience of London in the city in the book. I felt like there was a very um, deep sense of uh, privacy in a way that uh, the characters in the book seemed to only encounter or kind of be surveilled by the people that they wanted to be in their life. And um, I, I'm also thinking of like the, the scene in the Hampstead Ponds, you know, in, in reality, at least today, you go there and, and just outside the ponds, there's all kinds of tourists and people hanging out and, uh, and, and sort of even just the hustle and bustle of London as well as the sense of surveillance isn't in the book. And I was wondering if that had something to do with the characters or, or the time uh, that, that the book takes place. That's an interesting point. I hadn't really sort of thought about it quite in those terms. I think it's, yes, it's perhaps partly something about the character, well, you know, the main, I mean, Nick is obviously on stage in every page of the of the book, and so um, it's about a world which is perhaps rather ex exclusive in a, in a lot of ways. Um, I think he alludes. Uh, it's such a long time since I've read it, but I think he alludes um, at one point, doesn't he, to, to um, when they go to the ponds, to what it had been like the, the summer before when they were 
hundreds of queens lying out on the, on the grass. Um, um, but uh, yes, it's not, it's not a sort of hustle and bustle. Not, and, there's, um, and there's one scene in a, a gay pub. Um, it's a sort of scene of terrible moral, moral cowardice, I, I think. Um, I resisted put, having several sort of gay club scenes. I, I resisted putting in one of those. Um, and then Nick is sort of trying, he's trying to, to, to lead his sort of um, erotic life in a, in a sort of mm. social context which is not all altogether <coughs> amenable to it. Mm. Uh, and of course, the one, the one occasion when we see him having Leo back to the, to the Fedden's house is, is when, when they're away up in, up in Gerald's constituency, which actually, of course, is where Nick, Nick himself comes from. So uh, there's a sense that the, these, sort of, these things are mutually exclusive. Um, and I'm sort of touched by that, that again, it's the, the outsider thing about be, being gay. You know, here are these two young people, but they can't go to their respective homes because of um, their, mm. their parents mm. or whatever. Mm. So, so they, have, they have to have, <coughs> have sex in the public, well, not the public, the private garden. Mm. Um, and the sense that there's no social place, uh, accepted social mm. place for uh, gay people to sort of interact. Mm. Um, I mean, your question was about privacy, which I thought was interesting because um, uh, um, Gerald is all public performance and Nick is all private um, impulses, really. So yeah. the public-private theme is not within one character. It's, it's yes, quite separate. Yeah. Um, yes, on the front. Hello. Oh. Um, I think you mentioned earlier that um, you think a writer should be able to talk about anything, um, even if it's not necessarily in your own experience. Um, I think it was Wiesel who said about the Holocaust that the only response is silence. And um, is there, what's your response to that? Is there something that you genuinely fear tackling? Not like at a later date when it's safer to do so, as, as Russell was saying, but something that you actually think you, you really don't feel you can talk about? I would be very... Uh, well, I would never dream of writing a book about, about the Holocaust, and it would seem to me a kind of presumption. Um, I think it's... There are things... It's such a complex, complex matter of um, taste, judgment. You know, any writer wants to write to their own strengths, but any writer also wants to sort of set him or her, herself new challenges. Um, so I don't think I've really pinned down, defined things that I, I know I wouldn't write about, but I think it's very unlikely that I would write about all, all kinds of things. When I was writing my more recent book, The, the Strangest Child, which sort of turns on uh, the First World War, I knew that I didn't actually want to write about the First World War in it, um, because it, it wouldn't be playing to my, my strengths, as it were, I, um, and so many people many of them who were actually in the First World War, have written so marvellously about it already. So what's the point in trying to, to add to that? Um, I was much more interested in the effects of it on the, the mentality of people who survived it. Um, so does that answer your question? 
This is a righteous question, I felt. <laughs> What's I off limits? I think I'll have to think about it, but there's no, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, that gentleman there and that lady afterwards. Hi, um, I think one of the most memorable scenes in the novel is when Nick dances with uh, Thatcher. Um, even no, I never do. No. <laughs> 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 even compared to some of the more explicit or harrowing scenes elsewhere in the book. Um, could you talk about why and how you decided to include it and what point you think it serves in the novel, if any? I seem to remember that it, it was part of the sort of design from very early on um, and that, that Mrs. Thatcher would, would be this sort of um, genius loci. Or yeah, yeah mm. she would be a sort of... Uh, and you'd hear these various people beh behaving in peculiar ways out of their mm. um, adoration of her, fear of her, uh, their being in a state of perpetual conjecture about what she was so going to say or like do the, or wh yeah. whether she was going to bestow mm. her favour. Like the Iceman cometh. Mm. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, and that there will be various sort of foiled mm. entrances for her when you, so people trying to get her around or to come to the, and then she, did, she, did, she doesn't go to, the, um, to Toby's. 21st birthday party. So the Gerald's very excited. He sent an invitation, feels sure she will. Fortunately, she can't come. Uh, and that when she does come in, something sort of absurd, farcical. And, and it's a, there's a rather sort of horrible scene at the end of the, that, I mean, that you alluded to earlier when uh, the two boys who are supposed, supposed to be boyfriends are having the, uh, up in the bathroom with the. the um, of the waiter, um, and this horrible sort of ma materialistic sort of pay paying for sex, drug-fueled sort of thing mm. is going on at the same time as the Prime Minister leaving downstairs. Um, so I, meant, I saw all that as, as, a, as a rather sort of comic, grotesque sort of climax to that part of, of the book. Um, there's a wonderful book by Ian Gilmore, who, you know, notorious wet of Mrs. Thatcher's earlier mm. ca cabinets uh, called Dancing with Dogma, um, which is about uh, I mean, a very funny and illuminating st study of her, uh, the earlier part of her, um, her reign. And it has a, the book has a wonderful cover photograph, which is Ian Gilmore was um, about some six foot seven. Mm. And it's, I think it's a Tory party conference or something, and he is dancing with Mrs. Thatcher, who's sort of down about, about here, mm. um, obviously having tremendous problem with his enormous great feet, <laughs> not, not treading on hers. Uh, and it just seems to be a, a terribly comic sort of image. Um, so and all that hair must have been. And the hair, exactly. Yes. Mm. Um, but also, well, I haven't actually, I'm afraid, read Charles Moore's book, but I, I think, I mean, she was someone who liked a bit of fun sometimes. And well, I he, thought he, in this situation was, yeah. she might be surrounded yeah. by people who, who didn't dare ask her the simple question, you no. know, would you like a dance? Well, Moore, Moore's an insider, obviously, yeah. you know, so he knew her and was respected. It's an author, authorized biography. And he had access to her letters. That's what was crucial yeah. in that biography. Yeah. But I think um, she did quite like get down on a dance floor, didn't she? Oh, she did. Yeah, she, li uh, yeah, yeah. she liked her bop. Yeah. Um, can I just, you, after, yeah, in number two, there's one in the middle I pointed out before. Um, I remember reading your novel when it first came out and what a fantastically vivid 
um, portrayal it was of London, and the characters really jumped out of the, the pages. And I just wondered how you um, felt about the serialization, which happened much later, and um, the then um, relatively unknown but beautiful Dan Stevens, and then the denouement at the, with the mother saying, why are you still here? And it, I th thought the serialization brought the novel very well together and explained all those things you, you were thinking about during the novel. Yes, why is he still there? How is he a survivor? Um, I just wondered what you thought of the serialization. There's a curious fact about the sort of filming of, of things that all, all kinds of things have to be explained, which the novelist can get away with not explaining. <coughs> Indeed, mm. part of the point of the novel may, may be the not, the not explaining. Um, and, um, but somehow cinematic narrative re requires more sort of explanation mm. and clarification. I mean, Andrew Davis is very skillful at this, I think, and he knows what you have to do to turn a book into a successful screenplay. And so and there were one or two scenes that he introduced to kind of explain things which I deliberately left um, sort of conjectural in the in the my own narrative. Um, I mean, I, in a way, I'm the the last person who can judge it clearly. I mean, I, I love the whole experience of it being made, um, and, you know, because it was a completely new one to me. And uh, but I was very struck all along by the, the differences between the two media, um, and the, the the thing which I was eulogizing to Russell just now about the, sort of the infinite variety of a reader's experience and imagining of something. Uh, as a novelist, you only give little hints about something. You only focus on the person or the people who are speaking. You don't have to describe everybody who's standing around in the background. <coughs> of course, in film, they all have to be accounted for. Um, and there were a lot of very practical questions I remember in the making of the film. You know, um, I would get a email from Andrew Davis saying, what do you think Rachel Fedden has for breakfast? <laughs> the faintest idea what Rachel Fedden has. Um, I remember the wonderful Hayley Atwell. Um, there's a scene where Nick and Wani hear her and her latest boyfriend having sex in the room through the wall. And Hayley asked me very earnestly, do you, do you think Catherine fakes her orgasms? <laughs> I, mean, I have to say it's a question which has absolutely never crossed my mind. Uh, but, but obviously it was important to her in the creation of the character. Um, so um, I mean, they're, they're quite amusing, that those, those differences. Um, you know, I, I wish they'd had a bigger budget um, because I mean, the, the scene which is supposed to take place in, in the Dordogne was actually filmed just outside Brighton. And, uh, it's, and rather late in the year, too, so everybody was shivering. Yes, it all had to be filmed through special sort of yellow filters and things that you could create the illusion of sunshine. Um, but uh, I, think it, I think I was very lucky, really. And there, um, I mean, it's a terrible shock to a, a novelist, I think, probably the first time it happens, how much is left out in a, um, in a film. Um, but then... You know, you get a wonderful actor like Dan Stevens, who's in his first screen role, and can, can just do the most marvelously um, expressive things, just with a, a change of expression. Um, all those things which sort of I might take half a page to describe, you know, which can just happen in an instant. So, uh, and it was a great education to me, really, in the difference in the 
the two media. And it was lovely that all the young people in it sort of were the age of the characters in the book, and they were all really doing their first big parts. And, um, and so there was very, there was something quite sort of authentic about that. Mm. Um, did you not write, um, do the adaptation for Tip and the Velvet? Yes, I did, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, titter, titter, the question is there, yeah. Um, you had a question? Sorry? They won't be able to hear yeah. it behind, you see. Um, I'd like to, it's, all, it's really interesting to me that you said you're a really slow writer because I am too in my course, I'm just extremely slow and um, I just, I'd like to know how long it took you to write The Line of Beauty and also in general what your daily writing habits are when you're engaged in a novel or something. Well, when I'm really up and, I mean I spend years sort of putting off the moment but, but when I do actually realise I have got to knuckle down to it. I'm actually very, very disciplined and um, sort of try and shut myself off from the outside world and sort of work for at least eight hours a day. And, and, and um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in that I, I don't have a proper job, so I'm, um, I can theoretically do that. I, I'm unlucky in that I'm also incredibly lazy and so I, I, I'm distractible. Um, so it can be a bit of a, a test of willpower. Um, but um, yes, I've always written extremely slowly, and don't, don't worry about it. I mean, all writers have their own tempo. It means nothing in, in terms of the final result. You know, they're absolutely brilliant, brilliant writers. I mean, Evelyn War wrote Decline and Fall in a fortnight, I think. Didn't he? I mean, yeah. it, it, it's, um, and it's a sort of imperishable masterpiece. You know, it doesn't mean anything. Um, I think one of the first wisdoms that, uh, for any writer is to, c to come to an understanding of their own tempo. Um, and I'm resigned to the fact that it's going to take, I, well, I think your question was how long, I can't exactly remember, but I think a bit over three years, probably. Hmm. Um, one more question we have. Um, this lady, sorry, <laughs> and, um, there's so many hands, it's hard to make a, I feel like God up here. Um, <laughs> You're like someone outside Studio 54 or something. <laughs> like who's going yes, to exactly. yeah. yeah, bouncers yeah. are more appropriate. <coughs> so, so your your um, the irony is always uh, there in your in your writing and also in your interview tonight, and so I would like to know how for you you are you are dealing with between irony and the capacity that to create an empathy with your characters because it's always a balance to find I think. Yes, I mean I they're not mutually ex exclusive things. I think I mean uh, irony is certainly essential to the way most writers that I <laughs> care about work. Um, but you don't want an irony by which the, um, the novelist sort of sa sabotages their own creations, you know. I mean, I, I think if you feel that a, a novelist is at war with, with his own characters, then um, that there's something unfair about the way the novelist <coughs> is treating the characters, then it, you know, that, that, that immediately, that, that's a sort of a fault, I think, isn't it? Um, perhaps there are very brilliant sort of paranoid, horrible novelists who do it. Um, but I think, I mean, it's, in a way, it goes back to the early thing we, earlier thing we were talking about about you know being in, inside and outside, and what you can do with with free and direct style. You know, when you you, you go at, at will into the inner life of a character, and then then you are outside them again. 
Um, and talking about it like that makes it sound more schematic than it is. I think it, it, it's a, just a completely natural thing to me when I'm, when I'm writing. Um, and it, yes, I mean, the main characters, you have to have some sense of empathy, <coughs> yes, empathy for them. I mean, I mean, Gerald, you know, is a sort of terrible person, but he's, I sort of, one quite sort of likes him in a way. I think he's Despite his awfulness, he yeah. um, can be quite endearing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's a curious um, thing. Um, but that's I mean, the what's, skill well, of what's the characters, you know, to have the, have the complexity that people do in mm. real life. I mean, that, that seems to be one of the wonderful things about the novel, that you, you can sort of re replicate the moral mm. complexity and unresolvedness of, of ordinary mm. life. Um, uh, and Gerald gives out eventually, um, towards the end of the novel, to Nick, you know, and it's, even though it's quite, you know, difficult to read, it's, it's honest. So there's always been... Oh, difficult to read in that sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. but there's always, uh, just don't want to give away anything, but I mean, basically, uh, Gerald, at heart, there's something honest about him, but at the same time, he's also, you know, a victim of his own class, really. Yes. I think we have to close it there. We've just run over time by a few minutes. Um, so um, I would just like to take the opportunity of thanking Alan Hollandhurst for a very good and stimulating conversation. And um, thank you all for coming as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.